Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. In any kind of case, um, I am always looking for who literally had their hands on the defective part. And then more often than not, we'll also sue those folks. And it, it just makes it easier, frankly, to resolve a case. Trials are risky. You want to maximize your recovery for the client. And if you have three or four defendants, you might be able to get a number that makes sense to resolve the case. Please rise. Court is now in session. Welcome to the uh, Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry. And as always with me is Yvonne Godfrey. How are you doing today, Yvonne? I'm good. I just uh, I just had a few days off, a few days away from the office. So I'm feeling great. I'm feeling relaced. Ready I know you were up at the beach in South Carolina, right? Right. Yeah. It sounded very nice. And then you had to come back for this podcast. I know. And it's the worst part is this is a podcast. So nobody can see that I got very tan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can see you. Uh, and I don't know if you can tell, Yvonne, but uh, you haven't seen me, but I I, uh, I trimmed my beard. My, my, I, my long I, beard is gone. I do see that. Is that just, is that your summer look or did, or did well, you just decide it, you were over it? It was, uh, it was actually, uh, my wife basically told me that uh, it had gone on long enough and it needed to, <laughs> needed to end. <laughs> Got it. Well, it was cool while it lasted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I told her it might come back someday, but, uh, yeah. but not, not anytime soon, probably. <laughs> Um, well, uh, so Vaughn, I wanted to talk about our, uh, our guest today. We've got a fantastic guest on from uh, all the way from uh, Newport Beach, California. We've got Brian Chase, who is the managing partner of Bisner Chase. And you can look up Brian at bestattorney.com, which I have to say is one of the best uh, websites that I've seen of, of all the people we've talked to. So Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, Stephen Vaughn, thank you for having me on. It's a real pleasure and an honor to be with you folks right now. Yeah, well, we're uh, we're excited to talk about this case, and we talked a little bit off the air uh, bef beforehand, but about the um, you know the way you were able to use the law in this case to really help your client, and uh, and it sounds like uh, create some good law for uh, for California and for other cases. Oh yeah, it has just been you know a tremendous published opinion for anybody that does products liability cases, um, you know whether it's auto defects or any other kind. I've had friends or, or, or people that I don't know, but call me or email me and, and ask me for a copy of the opinion and, and my briefing on it, et cetera, and use it in all kinds of products cases. And, you know, it makes it very difficult for the defense to win a case when you get to use the consumer expectation test, uh, if you can exclude the risk benefit test or a lot of states use the unreasonably dangerous test. So, right. yeah, it's, right. been, it's been really wonderful here in California. Yeah, and, and uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and just tell, um, tell our listeners the, the name of the case. It was uh, Jacqueline, or Jacqueline Romine versus Johnson Controls, Inc. It was tried back in 2011 in Los Angeles, Los Angeles County, and it was a $24,744,764 verdict. And there was some apportionment, and we'll get into the facts in a little bit, uh, between the striking driver and Johnson Controls. Um, but still just a, a, a great verdict between, um, against uh, Johnson Controls. Yeah, thank you. It was, uh, they, they, they were on a string of bad luck back when this case was being tried. They lost a couple uh, prior to me. They lost another one after me. And uh, my understanding is I think they are trying to sell off their, their seat part of the business, actually. Oh, wow. I'd want to check that, but I, I recall hearing some, some scuttlebutt about that. Wow, I didn't I didn't realize that uh, that at all. Well, Brian, let's tell our listeners a little bit about you. Um, as I said already, Brian is uh, is the managing partner of Bisner Chase. 
Uh, he's based in Newport Beach, California, with offices all over Southern California. Uh, Brian has been named uh, Lawyer of the Year several times, I was noticing, but uh, was the 2019 Lawyer of the Year, and his law firm uh, was named the 2018 Best Law Firm. Uh, he was named um, the Trial Lawyer of the Year uh, by the Consumer Attorneys of California in 2012, and the Trial Lawyer of the Year by the Orange County Trial Lawyers Association in 2004. Um, he, Brian has been the uh, president of the Consumer, Consumer Attorneys of California, which is essentially uh, the trial lawyer organization, and then also the president of the or Orange County Trial Lawyers, uh, and has been given a number, of, uh, a, a number of awards, has been on CBS, World News Tonight, Fox News, uh, as a speaker and uh, and has a book published, which I love the name of. It's uh, it's it's about auto products cases, and it's called "Still Unsafe at Any Speed," uh, which is yeah. a great title. And uh, and then if you if you go onto to Brian's website, you can see that uh, he and his law firm have had a string of multi million dollar verdicts and settlements, and uh, and are just doing uh, uh, great work out in Southern California. So we're we're so happy to have you on, Brian. Well, as I said at the beginning, it's really it's it's my honor and pleasure to be on your your podcast. Uh, I, I listen to it. You do you guys do great work. You disseminate great information, and you know my view is uh, w with technology and the media nowadays, it's like the whole United States. We're all one big law firm that do plaintiffs work, <laughs> and we all stand on each other's shoulders. So you know, good for you for disseminating all the information that you do that we all borrow from each other to make ourselves better to help our clients. Yeah, and it, it, it just gives us a great excuse to talk to uh, some great lawyers about the about their very interesting cases. <laughs> and I got to learn about your beard, and I guess you didn't. You got tired of sitting on the couch or something. I don't know. <laughs> right? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, well, let's talk a little bit about this case. Uh, as I said, it's uh, Romine versus Johnson Controls. It was uh, uh, just under a twenty-five million dollar verdict. Um, essentially, what happened in this case, Brian, is uh, your client was. Uh, was driving um, and uh, basically was stopped for traffic coming off of a freeway ramp. And uh, so there was a line of cars, about five cars that I uh, read. And um, the defendant driver, or I guess he wasn't the defendant in the case, but he was a, um, a striking driver, I should say, uh, Basically, sounds like he just came speeding off the freeway, either wasn't watching what he was doing uh, or, you know, for whatever reason, ran into the vehicle behind your client's vehicle at somewhere between 70 to 86 miles per hour from what I saw, which then pushed that vehicle into your client's vehicle. And uh, I saw the speeds of that was around 42 to 43 miles an hour, which is, which is still a very high speed. Uh, and then pushed your vehicle into the vehicle in front of it at somewhere between 24 to 27 miles per hour, and then into the vehicle in front of that at 18 miles an hour. And what happened in, to your client was that the, the seat uh, that she was sitting in, she was in the driver's seat, uh, failed, um, and basically uh, reclined backwards during the, um, during the collision. And she uh, ramped up it and, and uh, hit her head and neck into the uh, rear seat causing a severe spinal cord injury and uh, and she suffered uh, paraplegia and um, and she was a paraplegic as a result of this collision um, and uh, if I got that about right 
uh, Brian? Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. When when I hear you say it that way, that that black and white, I'm thinking, why did they take the case? <laughs> <laughs> well, I always try to make them sound hard, you know, because <laughs> so that Thank we, can, you. we can hear what <laughs> tremendous work was done by our. By our Lord. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. <laughs> well, and, and you know, I mean, so we we've talked about this on the podcast before. Our firm does a lot of product liability. Um, uh, work and, and in the auto and we've done a number of these seatback cases and in fact I was noticing from the uh, the uh, opinion there was this court case went up to the court of appeals uh, that you use some of the same experts that uh, that, that we've used in these cases um, and uh, and I you know and I can just tell you um, you know seeing that that you know closing distance speed for the striking vehicle of 70 to 86 miles per hour um, yeah, I realize that's not the one that hits your vehicle. I mean, but that is, that is a scary fact in a product liability case um, because, you know, the defendants in these cases always claim uh, that it was a hell of a wreck and there's really nothing they could have done. And when you see speeds like that, um, it, sometimes it can be hard to argue, but, I, but obviously uh, that's something you handled very well. Yeah, that was, that was obviously a concern in the case. Um, we, we, the, the, the ultimate, the, the driver that started the chain reaction coming off the freeway at 70 or 80, um, he, he had passed away, not from the accident, but by the time we went to trial. We think uh, that he must have had some kind of medical issue because, you know, he was an older gentleman. He had actually gotten in an accident on the freeway and kept going on the off-ramp and had our accident. You know, the defense wanted to argue hit and run, but there was nothing really to make us think that. So I think we really think he had some sort of medical issue to kind of downplay his conduct. But, um, you know, one thing we were talking about standing on each other's shoulders and, and, uh, and making each other better. I've got people that I respect that do a lot of seatback cases and, and they just try to frame the speeds as, and it's what I used here as a surface street speed accident. So my client was rear-ended at in the low forties and, you know, that sounds like a big accident and, you know, and it, it, it's, it's big, but you certainly shouldn't be paralyzed in it. You should, you know, right. The, right, the right front seat passenger opened up the car door and walked away. Um, so rather than really talking speeds, I kept talking about just a surface street speed accident, try to downplay the speed component. And I also think as people who do products work or people who do personal injury work, that speed sounds like more based on our sort of perspective or experience than it does to the average person. I think to the average person, um, especially depending on where they live, they're usually driving somewhere faster than that. So, you know, I think we're thinking about it from one angle, but I think the average person is like, that's really not that fast. Like people are driving faster than that around me all the time. Right. Yeah, no, that, right. that, that's absolutely correct. As a matter of fact, you know, two things. Uh, one, one thing I do when, when I try these cases, and I did it in this case, is I start out right in my opening statement showing pictures of the car because it did not look, to the extent someone thought 40 miles an hour or 45 was a big accident, um, I pointed out that, you know, the, the glass in the rear window was still intact, the glass uh, taillights were still intact. Um, I showed that there was obviously property damage, but the pictures oftentimes could help you and make the crap. And then, you know, you show the jury, do you expect to get paralyzed in this accident when the car did not look that bad? One, two, I've done a lot of focus groups because I've done these cases where, you know, speeds up to 65 miles an hour. Now that does scare me. Right. But I've, right. Done, I've done several focus groups and more often than not, not exclusively, but more often than not had the focus group people come back in our favor 
and say, hey, cars are made to go 65 miles an hour and more on the freeway, so they should be able to withstand a crash like that and your seat shouldn't break. So it is scary for, for us, but it seems like people expect a car to hold up at speeds that's meant to be driven. Uh, you know, you, you like to hear that uh, the focus groups um, are, are thinking that way. But, uh, you know, the other side of that is at least what I've s seen the defense try to argue is, you know, when they bring out one of the, the defense expert firms like Exponent or somebody like that, and they'll say that, you know, hey, they were the they worked the accident that involved Dale Earnhardt and that uh, speed at the Delta V when he hit the uh, hit the wall was 42 or 43 miles an hour. And so they always try to make it sound like, you know, that the. Uh, that if you're if that same range is the same as a race car and so uh it, it's definitely an issue to deal with but i i like i like the way your focus groups are thinking yeah yeah no it, it it's turned out to to work out well but you're exactly right the whole hell of a wreck defense and and all the folks at, at uh, exponent and I, I love their their ad that i think is down now doubt is our product <laughs> right yeah um, exactly um but yeah no you, you have to deal with that and um and you get varying degrees of success on the uh, you know the, the apportionment issue of liability on these cases and that's what it boils down to yeah one thing i wanted to ask you is uh because you know one of the things we always look at is you know what were the injuries to the other folks that were involved here and i know that she had uh her her boyfriend was in the vehicle as well was was he injured and if so how much was he injured yeah no he wasn't injured at all he he literally opened the door and uh got out of the vehicle and and so you know, we were trying to figure, there's two reasons why that probably happened. The one reason is he was very, you know, he was very light. Um, I don't remember off the top of my head exactly how light, but he was a small guy. I'm going to say 150 pounds, give or take. Um, you know, he could have been 160, could have been 148, but he was, you know, say 150 pounds. Jackie right. was around 220, so she was heavier. And, you know, you do products cases and you done seat cases, so you know, that her seat took a greater load than his seat did. And, and that might be explained. One reason why her seat failed, uh, his didn't, uh, because of the weight. And I, you know, when you talk to the defense about these cases behind the scenes, they try to argue that to you. And I, so, and I say, so you're going to go try to explain to the jury that if you weigh over 200 pounds, you know, your seat can break. And it's, yeah. I call it the yeah. fat person defense. And, you know, they don't really ever make that argument at trial, but they try to make that argument, you know, behind the scenes with you. And unfortunately, nowadays, you know, they do, uh, you know, they, they do testing with 95th percentile dummies that are, you know, up over 200 pounds. So they test in that range. So, you know, I, I'm not really ever worried about it, but that, that does seem to be the main reason why her seat failed and his didn't. There was another thing we noticed with, with his seat. The front left anchor point where the seat was bolted into the floor, there was a bolt missing there. I don't know if it broke in the crash or if for some reason it wasn't there, but I don't know why it wouldn't have been there. Um, but that would have maybe that would have made him load his seat a little bit less. I don't know if that's going to make sense on the podcast. Right. Uh, the way I describe that, unless you do auto products cases, but that, that could be the possible other explanation. But I think it was mainly he was just light. Well, basically, that there's a little bit more give in his seat, so it's not taking as much load on the uh, on on the uh, recliner. Yeah, exactly, and and that that could have happened. It, it, the defense tried to, to to argue that, and it, it you know it obviously didn't work. But the reason I I think it's that's probably what happened. I guess what I'm trying to say is because we ran I don't know four or five sled tests with varying size dummies and we had fifth percentile female dummies 
and I forget what they weigh, but it's, it's under 150. It's like 120 or something like that. And, and we were laying the seats down at the same Delta V in this accident with those light dummies. So either that bolt was not there or broke and maybe did put less force on the, rec on the recliner and allowed the seat to, to not fail. Yvonne, what does every successful law firm need? Really great lawyers like me. Re that is exactly right. Really great lawyers like Yvonne. <laughs> uh, they also need cases, right? Right. And uh, what's the way we get cases? I think I know where you're going with this, and I'm going to say our website. <laughs> our website is a big one, and the best website firm out there is Digital Law Marketing. Yvonne, tell our listeners what Digital Law Marketing does. Well, they can help you with things like search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, content marketing strategies, web design and development, Reputation management, which sounds very mysterious. I, I definitely need some reputation management. I, I, I'd like to find out exactly what that does. We need to look into that one a bit more. <laughs> uh, and they also do local search. And I'm sure if you call Mike and Stephanie over at Digital All Marketing, they will tell you what local search means. And they'll tell you what all of these things do and how it can help build your law firm and get you cases. Call Mike and Stephanie or look them up at their website, digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. I think, so I think we've talked about this before. I think we had a, we talked about another um, seatback case on the, on a, another episode of the podcast, but Brian, for our listeners without, um, I know it's kind of hard to do it in words without being able to show somebody, but we've talked a lot about the seat back failing and loading the seat back and that, and that sort of thing. But can you describe for our listeners what that means, especially for the people who either um, aren't lawyers at all or who don't do products work, what hap how the seat fails and how somebody gets injured as a result of that failure? Yeah, no, sure. So if, you know, if you, uh, you know, if you, if you, everybody knows what a, a car seat looks like when it's in its normal upright position, you know, and you're driving. So that's when a seat is, I'm going to call that upright, just what your seat looks like when you go get in your car every day. So what happened in this case and what happens in these seat back, quote unquote, cases is when a car gets rear-ended, um, the seat starts, your body starts being pushed into the seat from the forces of the accident. And that seat goes from being upright at, you know, it's not, it's not at, at uh, 90 degrees, but from being upright. And then it starts going backwards to where it lays down into the back seat to where the seat is more or less flat. So now your driver's seat from being seated upright is more like a bed and you're laying down flat in the seat. And then what happens is as that seat is going back and laying down flat, the driver or passenger becomes like they're in bed in a prone position. And then they slide right off the seat into the back seat, hit their head in the back seat, and then ultimately, you know, more often than not break their neck and then have a spinal cord injury. Yeah. And, and a yeah. lot of people ask, you know, well, why, you know, doesn't the seatbelt do anything? And, and um, you know, and as we, you know, explain in these cases, I mean, seatbelts are mainly made for frontal collisions. Uh, and, you know, if, if you have a side to some extent, but in a rear collision, the, your main protection is the seat back itself. That's what's going to hold you in there. So if that fails, yeah. then you're, you basically have no restraint. Yeah, no, hundred percent correct. I mean, what I what I tell juries is exactly what you just said. I said, you know, a seatbelt is for if you get in a head-on collision. If you get rear-ended, your seatbelt is your seat back. So I, I try to get the jury to thinking that that seat that's your seatbelt. 
Right. And when it right. catastrophically fails, you are essentially not seat belted in the car anymore. Yeah. And that seems to resonate. You know, and I guess we should mention that some of these uh, cases, uh, you know, all of them are tragic when you see catastrophic injuries like this. But, you know, in my mind, some of the really just uh, gut wrenching cases that I've seen with these seatbacks is where you happen to have a child sitting in the back and the parent or whoever's driving the vehicle gets uh, propelled into the child and causes serious injuries to a child sitting in the back seat because the seatback in front of them failed. And those are... um, you just, you know, re- tragic because it's, you know, injuries to both of them, but also this sort of uh, p- parental guilt that they have where they, you know, catastrophically injured or killed their child because the seatback didn't sit up. Oh, you know, absolutely. Those are, as you say, they're all sad and tragic cases because it's unnecessary in the accidents we're talking about to be paralyzed or catastrophically injured, let alone catastrophically injure or kill your own child. Uh, I've had cases where, you know, a mom has gone back, the seat laid down flat, like I was talking earlier, and the mom was in the prone position. And I've, I've had moms hit their child's chest and rupture an aorta. And then the mom crawls in the back seat holding their child as the child dies in their arms. Mm. Um, I've had cases where the children are in the back seat, and this seems to happen more than getting hit in the chest, they get hit in the face. And, you know, I mean, literally just bash the, their skull open and, and either kill them or get a, just a catastrophic brain injury. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's devastating. And the industry knows that that's going to happen. You know, they know, and they'll admit, and as you know, they'll admit discovery that, yeah, you know, some people are going to get paralyzed that are in the front seat and some kids are going to get killed, but that's okay because overall we think we have a safe seat and it's just mind boggling. Yeah, well, let's yeah. talk about this case because, uh, you know, one of the things that, um, as we said, this case went up on appeal and and, um, and the big issue or there are several issues, but the big issue on appeal was this, the use of the consumer expectation test. Um, so, Brian, can you talk a little bit about what, what the consumer expectation test is and then, you know, what some of the other theories that, for instance, in Georgia, we don't use the consumer expectation test. We use the risk utility test or... Um, or the risk benefit is the way it's referred to some other places. Um, but w- can you refer to or, or tell tell our listeners about what the consumer expectation test is and how you're able to use that in this case? Yeah, um, happy to. So, you know, the consumer expectation test is is our Supreme Court said, you know, back I think in the 70s with this case, Barker versus Law, that you can prove an auto defect case either using the consumer expectation test or the risk benefit test, or both, your choice. Um, Now, every published opinion from the 70s on said, yes, you can use that test, but you shouldn't have used it in this case. So it's hard to get that test in, uh, or it has been hard, because even though our Supreme Court said it's appropriate in, in products cases, every published opinion said, while appropriate, not appropriate here. So that, that was always frustrating. Um, and the reason is the consumer, I guess to answer your question more directly, the consumer expectation test to prove defect is, you know, you ask the jury, well, the, the law is if an ordinary consumer is familiar with the product and can formulate minimum safety assumptions of that product, of how it should perform under certain circumstances, then it's an appropriate way to prove defect. Luckily, in auto defect cases, 
almost every human being on the planet drives a car, so they're familiar with the product. And, right. and they do have minimum safety assumptions because they, they see crashes, they see all the testing on TV, you know, front crashes, et cetera. So the beautiful thing about the test is you get to just talk to the jury, you get to show them the accident and ask them, in this case, do you expect your seat to do that under these facts? Most jurors are going to say, no, I don't, and therefore you win the case. And the nice thing about that is, is you eliminate much of the expert testimony. So you have to have reconstruction to talk about the speeds, et cetera, but you get out, you, you don't have to get into the design of the seat. You're just showing the jury the seat and how it performed in this accident, and do they expect it to have done that? Now, in states that don't have, wait, wait, let me back up, that, that's a much easier burden, as you know, uh, for us to meet in these cases. The, the Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards are inadmissible, so they can't come in and defend on that. They can't come in and use their risk benefit or risk utility evidence, you know, i.e. the seat is designed to absorb energy is what they say. And for listeners that don't do these cases, suffice it to say they bring in exponent and these experts that they pay millions of dollars to to say, this is a good seat. Here's why it's made to do what it did. And if they get to do that day after day in court, it's very easy for a jury to go, man, this is, you know, they had to make an engineering judgment here above my pay grade and it's a lot harder to win a case when they put in that kind of evidence so being able to use the consumer expectation test makes you know the threshold to prove defect significantly easier um, for plaintiffs in these kinds of cases and this case reminds the first published opinion in california that affirmatively said yes you can use it here and they have some great language in it and so uh, you know, the, the really the, the, the best part about the case besides getting justice for my client, that's obviously the best part, is, you know, if this opinion is around for 10, 20, 30, 50 years, however long, there are going to be hundreds, you know, if not thousands of people, they're going to have a much easier time in court uh, proving their defect on any kind of product. Yeah, it really is a great opinion. And I just want to mention quickly for our lawyer listeners especially you can find the opinion it's 224 california appeals 4th 990 um it's a 2014 opinion but it's it's great i mean um and it really i think it's sort of it also illustrates what you were saying brian about how when i was reading the the initial the law section about consumer expectations and when you could use it it seemed um very confusing as to when you could use it and when you could not use it. Um, right. But hopefully your case and this opinion helps with that. It has. Um, you know, I have used this test for, you know, 15 plus years prior to that opinion, but I had to argue all the cases that said you can use it, but not here. And I always like to to comment when I used before this for my opinion, I'd have to argue to the court, you know, the jur the, the defense, wants to make it out to be the complexity of the product test. And they right. want to confuse the judge that a jury cannot possibly have an expectation. And I'll tell you, you know, left up to the auto industry, they'd make a piece of paper seem complicated to make. Oh, yeah. They'd talk about having to go out in the forest and cut down the tree and go through the milling process and blah, blah, blah. Oh yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And, and it's not the complexity of the product test. It does the consumer, you know, have experience with the product and been able to form minimum safety assumptions. So, um, it, it, it's a great opinion. And since it's been out, you know, I've had a lot of friends and just people that have emailed me to use it uh, in cases. 
and have been successfully able to do so because it's finally, it's a pretty straightforward opinion and kind of cuts through the defense argument that I used to have to fight year after year after year uh, prior to getting this opinion. And just to add for the, for the lawyers in the group, if you have a California case, and maybe any case in the state, if they, if they allow the test, what you do is you have to do this um, with a motion in limine and ask the judge right up front, I want to prove my case with the consumer expectation test and exclude the risk benefit test because you don't want to do it at the end of trial because then all the evidence is coming in. So some people don't, don't necessarily appreciate that. So you want to get this ruling right up front. Yeah, I was wondering about when you needed to make your determination <clears throat> on which test you were going to use or whether or not you're going to use uh, both, but that makes good sense. So you do that right at the beginning uh, when you're when you're dealing with your motions in limine. And, and I guess but what you're arguing is that you're keeping out evidence that would go towards the risk-benefit test because you're only going under the consumer expectation test? Exactly. You know, and it cuts your trial time in half. Judges love that. Um and, and, and that's exactly the argument you make to the judge. You know, that evidence is irrelevant under the consumer expectation test, so the jury should not hear it if you're going to allow me to proceed that way. And here's the case. And, and now if it's a seatback case, you know, in California, it's very decisive, and the courts have to allow it. I, I, was, I started trial a few months ago on a seatback case um, against a different manufacturer, and it's, it's funny how the industry wants to do away with this. And I tell them, I understand you want to do it, but the courts right now have to follow the law. There's nothing you can do. I had this law firm. It was Bowman and Brooks. They brought in their appellate attorneys to argue the motion and eliminate against me on this. They want to get rid of it so bad. I mean, I thought I was in the Supreme Court arguing a motion and eliminate. Well, you know, the reason why I like the consumer expectation test is because it really goes with how, uh, you know, these car companies I mean, really any product manufacturer markets their product. I mean, they're, they're never marketing, you know, the uh, complex engineering side. They're marketing, like, how safe their vehicle is and what it can do. And, um, and so uh, it, it goes a lot more in line with how they market to consumers and then, you know, and what a consumer should expect. So, it, um, yeah, I, I realize it's, it's, it's not as high of a burden or as hard of a burden as the risk utility test, but, I mean, it really makes good sense when you're talking to, you know, a product that's, that gets sold to an end user and what they should expect for it. Yeah, you know, that's a great point, Stephen. I've never worded it that way or thought about it that way. So I just learned something. I'm going to steal that from you next time I'm in court. <laughs> well, um, well, because, I, you know, the defense loves to say, they always say, you know, it's a stupid task. Consumers, they, they're not engineers. They don't know this. They don't know that. And, you know, I typically fall back and say, hey, the law is the law. I like what you just said, and that's exactly right. They don't argue all that engineering mumbo jumbo. They argue, or market rather, to the public safety, how safe their car is, and all these various crash modes. And so the auto industry's marketing does form the expectation. I love that. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> well, well, I, I, I uh, you know, I told you, uh, I, I don't know if I mentioned it on the podcast, but I, I've handled it with my partners, handled one consumer expectation test on a, uh, it was a, um, a Jeep Wrangler uh, rollover that happened out in Utah. And, um, and they had the consumer expectation test. And in that case, the, you know, the bar collapsed and, and caused our client uh, not only to be partially ejected, but killed. And, um, and, you know, and our whole point was, well, this is a, a roll bar. I mean, everybody expects it's going to 
you know, protect you when you roll. And, it, and you know, if you really read through their documents, they'll say, this is not a roll bar and it's not going right. to protect you in a rollover. But, but uh, it, all their marketing says the exact opposite. You know, like this is, you know, in uh, the way they sell it, if you walk into a, a Jeep Wrangler dealership, they're going to talk about the roll bar. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, so uh, Brian, tell us some of the difficulties with this case. I mean, you know, obviously you had the speed in this case, and then uh, it, it sounded like there was a significant argument on apportionment. And, and again, they um, apportioned a, a, a significant percentage to the striking driver. But talk about how you were able to work through some of the apportionment issues with the jury so that they found the seat manufacturer uh, responsible. Yeah, um, and that was that was the one you know disappointing part to the opinion um, in a way because it was it was split 80 20 80 against the bullet car driver and it could have been because he was going 80 miles an hour and only 20 uh, against the car that uh, and only 20 against the manufacturer. Now it's not as bad as it sounds because in California we have without getting too in the weeds you know we don't have joint and several liability so that's a bummer like a lot of states do we used to, but we have Prop 51, Proposition 51, which means on your economic damages, we do, all you have to do is hit the defendant for 1% liability, and then you collect the full amount of your economic damages. So I forget what our life care plan was here, but let's just say it's $10 million, then I remember what it was. So 1% liability, you're gonna get your, your $10 million. So that, that's the good news about the law in California. Um, but more to your question, the way I tried to argue, and it obviously didn't work here, I argued 80-20 the other way and they flipped it on me, but I was in an incredibly conservative jurisdiction in Pasadena where everybody thought you can't even win a case out there. So it's not surprising the jury went that way, 80-20, uh, against Johnson Control. Uh, uh, but what I always start out with is I tell the jury, I start out at 50-50. I try to say, look, if the seat didn't fail, we wouldn't be here. But if my client didn't get rear-ended, we wouldn't be here either. So let's start at, that seems like if we want to be rational people, 50% against the driver, 50% against the manufacturer, because but for either one of them, we wouldn't be here. And then I try to break it down that, now the difference is we all get in accidents every day. We know that's going to happen. And the manufacturer knows that's going to happen. And as a matter of fact, they test for it. And they expect us to get in accidents, and that's why they're called accidents. You know, we have seatbelts, uh, you know, not for when we're sitting in the garage. We have a seatbelt if we get in an accident. We have airbags, not if we're sitting in a parking lot, but if we get in an accident. Here's the seat, your seatbelt. Johnson Controls knew this was going to happen. So I think we ought to move the bar from 50-50 more to their end because they should share more responsibility because they test for this, and they know that this is going to happen out on the road to protect us. Now, the jury, obviously, in this case, didn't buy it because I argued Johnson Controls should be 80% responsible and the bullet car driver 20%. The jury did the exact opposite. So right, right. I, I, I failed miserably at that. But, you know, that's what I try to do. And, and typically, it does go the other way. You know, usually, if it's a reasonable speed accident, you know, like this one or less, what I call a reasonable speed accident, you know, I, I, you know, I think, you know, typically, you can get 60 to 90 percent against the manufacturer but I, I was in a very conservative jurisdiction and i had a really conservative jury the um you know one of the things i was wondering about in this apportionment case if you mentioned that you thought that the striking driver might have had some sort of medical event 
was there any attempt to try and claim act of God? And, and I guess, you know, um, would that have prevented them from apportioning against the, uh, against the striking driver if it had been an, an act of God since that, I mean, at least here in Georgia, act of God, you know, if you prove it is a, is a complete defense. Um, how would that have worked out there? You know, I, I'm going to have to show my ignorance right now. Cause I really don't know. I don't, I've, I've never had to deal with that. So I honestly don't even know if we have it out here and I, I think we do have it, but uh, I've never had to deal with it. So I don't know. Um, and, and we certainly didn't deal with in this case cause no one really knew what happened. Right. Um, you know, no one really knew and no one could really argue hard that, well, no one could argue at all, frankly, that he, you know, he had a medical event, uh, because we just didn't know. So you kind of had to dance around it and hopefully the jury was going to read between the lines and maybe think that, but the defense could never prove it and then try to argue, you know, act of God. Yeah, sorry about that. that I guess that's uh, I'm throwing in my own cases. I just recently had a case where a, a man uh, ran into the back of a very popular restaurant here in Savannah, and and so the whole defense in that case was that he had a medical event and it was an act of God. And so that, that that's that's why I'm uh, uh, up up on the law, and that makes me think about act of God. So um, yeah, no, I yeah, I'm gonna when we. Uh, when we wrap up this podcast, I'm going to go down the hall and talk to my brain trust and, and, and kind of, you know, bone up on that a little bit. <laughs> um, well, tell us a little bit. We, we didn't really get into, I mean, I know we said that your client um, was paralyzed in, in this uh, a collision. Tell us a little bit about how she was injured and then, um, you know, how you, did you have her testify at trial? Did you have her there the whole time? Tell us about some of the, you know, how she did. Uh, you know, as sure. we all know, uh, a client, um, a great client can make a case and a, a, a bad client can, uh, you know, unfortunately sometimes sink a case. Yeah, no, that that's true. Um, Jackie Romine was, a, you know, a great plaintiff. She's just a great gal. And, you know, I'm happy to report that, you know, obviously initially after this accident, she was very depressed and suicidal and those types of things you can imagine if you have a spinal cord injury. And she has since then gone on, graduated college and has a photography career. Uh, she recently celebrated her birthday in New York City, flew back there, and she's really flourishing, so I'm very happy for her. She was just a neat person, and that re resonated with the jury. Uh, she was just a really hardworking gal. Um, her father is a paramedic, and, and so he testified very well on how Jackie and he worked with her to rehab her, et cetera. Uh, and what a tough fighter she is. So there was no pity party or any of that kind of stuff, and, and she just did phenomenal. What I did do, though, and I do this in all my cases, um, is I did not have her at court every day because I get worried that a jury, you know, they see somebody in a wheelchair day in and day out for a month, they may get kind of, you know, uh, sensitized to it or immune to you know, how bad it is. And, and, and you could probably make an argument, they'll realize they see her struggling every day and, and how difficult it is. I don't know. But I try to have a little, you know, theater and drama whenever you do a trial, because you want to do that and you want to keep people interested. So I had her there, obviously, for jury selection, because, you know, I had to make sure the jury saw her and, and either liked her or didn't like her, but see how they reacted with her in the room and their comfort level being around her. Um, but then, I didn't have her come to court every day. She was probably, she obviously was in court the day she testified and she came to court, you know, maybe 
one or two days a week for just a couple hours. Come in either in the morning and then leave at the break or come in at the break and stay till the lunch break, et cetera. I wanted them to know that she was engaged, but not there every day and just getting immune to kind of seeing her. So it was always, I felt, sort of dramatic when she was there and would really pull at your heartstrings. And you could see the difficulty she was having while she was there with her nurse but not seeing it every day. Cause I, I, I get paranoid and worried that a jury is just going to get desensitized to it. And I'd rather, you know, try to avoid that if I can. Right. Right. Um, and then as far as, uh, did you do anything like uh, um, uh, day in the life videos or any, any sort of demonstratives as far as just showing the jury what it, what it's like to um, for her to go through that. And as, as far as how you explained her, um, her injuries. Yeah, no, absolutely. We we did have a day in the life. So the jury was able to see, you know, we had a, a film crew go out literally to her house before, while she was still sleeping, you know, before she woke up in the morning and they went through, you know, her waking up or, or the nurse waking her up, uh, having to get her out of bed with a Hoyer lift. I know you know what that is, uh, but people that don't deal with, with spinal cord injuries or, or non-lawyers, you know, it's like a, a little mini crane that you have mm -hmm. to roll the person into and crane them up out of bed. So they saw that, putting her down in the wheelchair, showed her, you know, having to wheel into the shower, but, you know, being very discreet about that on, on what, it, what it's like to try to bathe and have someone bathe you and the lack of independence and the lack of dignity uh, that, that people like this have to go through, you know, people blow drying your hair, uh, all of that kind of stuff. So we did have a day in the life and went through, you know, literally from the morning to getting ready to eating to when she wants to travel somewhere, you know, the hassle of having to wait for someone to pick you up and try to get in a car uh, and all of that. So, yeah, we, we definitely had that so the jury could understand, you know, pictures are worth a thousand words, right? And I know you guys know that and all the lawyers out there do know that. But, yeah, you, you can't explain it nearly as well as someone seeing it. Brian, this is kind of shifting gears a little bit, but we um... – I think we, we kind of touched on this briefly, but we didn't really talk about it in detail. I think a lot of people, and I certainly, until I started working on products cases, I sort of assumed that everything in a car was made by that auto manufacturer, you know? So um, can you talk a little bit about, um, obviously in this case, the, this, the seat manufacturer was not the auto manufacturer. Can you talk a little bit about... Um, component manufacturers and identifying them and, and how they sort of are involved in the, the, the process of what, what goes into a car. Cause I think a lot of people just think it's all put together on a line and then it, you know, goes to the dealership or whatever, and then they buy it. Yeah. You know, that is a great question. Um, uh, most cars and maybe every car, you know, the auto manufacturer does not make every part in the car. They have design specs that they farm out much of the parts in the car. So in this case, and I do it in any seat back case, I want to find out um, who made the seat because I'm not aware of any manufacturers that do make their own seat. There may be one, but I'm not aware of it. And so we started out there and we found out Johnson Controls um, uh, made the seat as a whole. And they make about, at the time anyway, 70% of the seats in all cars. Um, so we started out wanting to, to bring them in for a couple different reasons. One is the auto manufacturer is legally responsible for the seat, so you don't need the seat manufacturer in there. But you want to maximize the recovery for your client, so we were able to settle with the manufacturer 
and then try the case against somebody else. And if, if we didn't have to try it, it could have settled. And that's maximizing the recovery for the client. So we started there. And then after we got the design drawings and plans from the auto manufacturer and from Johnson Controls, we also found out there was uh, another supplier that actually made the recliner and the recliner mechanism for the seat. So then we ultimately sued them as well. And so we were able to settle with the manufacturer, settle with one or more component part manufacturers that had their hands on the seat. And Johnson Controls was just being very difficult and uh, didn't want to resolve the case. And so they, we ended up trying it against them. So in any kind of case, whether it's a seatbelt case or an airbag case, um, I am always looking for who made the, who literally had their hands on the defective part. And then more often than not, not always, but more often than not, we'll also sue those folks. And it, it just makes it easier, frankly, to resolve a case. Trials are risky. You want to maximize your recovery for the client. And if you have three or four defendants, you might be able to get a number that makes sense to resolve the case. Whereas if you didn't have those three or four in there and you just had one defendant in the case, you know, might make it impossible to resolve. So I'm always looking for that. Right. Right. And I mean, and the risk that they're, you know, whoever you don't bring in, then they're going to blame that, that, you know, the empty chair, they're going to blame the person that you didn't bring in. So it kind of leaves you with no choice sometimes. Yeah. And in California, they, the auto manufacturer can't do that. Um, and they, I think they can in some jurisdictions. So we're kind of lucky in California that because they're strictly liable, they can't try to offset their liability unless the, the component part manufacturer was negligent, then they could, they could argue, Hey, they didn't make it the way we wanted them to. If they wanted to do that and point the finger at them, then they absolutely would put them on the verdict form. Um, but as long as it was designed the way they wanted to, they, they, they can't do that out here in California. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve, that has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day in the life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. So uh, I wanted to go back to um, where you, what you were saying about the way economic damages are handled, that, that those are not apportioned. Is that, is that what I was understanding right out in California? Yeah, unless, yeah, and there's always an exception, right? Unless the plaintiff was negligent as well. Their negligence would offset that. But okay. here, in a case where you have a plaintiff with clean hands and no negligence, yeah, you only have to uh, get 1% liability against the manufacturer. 
and then you get all your economics. So, okay, so I'm looking at your verdict form and you do have economic loss um, that was put in here. And it looks like almost, well, it looks like about f- almost $6 million of it was economic loss. So that part of it would not have been apportioned? Correct. Okay. Okay. It, because I, I, another thing that confused me is I saw in the opinion at, when, when the uh, judge was describing, you know, essentially how much money was at stake, it, it's, it talked about some offsets and, I, you know, and I, um, you know, that confused me because, you know, at least, you know, in Georgia, when you have apportionment, there is no offset um, because you're apportioning. Um, but so I guess that the offsets would apply um, to the, uh, the economic loss part that, that doesn't get apportioned? Yeah, not dollar for dollar. But yeah, there are credits or offsets that get proportioned out based on a formula uh, for the entire verdict. So that that is how that works out here. Now, we kind of got lucky in a way because they appealed this and it took a couple of years and we did what is called out here a statutory offer to compromise for X dollars. And if you beat that number while it's up on appeal, you get 10% interest on the money and you get all your trial costs back. Oh, wow. So, so, you know, the client almost recovered, well, it's confidential, so I don't want to say, but, but the interest you can calculate out. I mean, she got, an, I think, you know, pushing $2 million, just an in interest on the money. So right. it worked out well for her, even though it was a delay. Um, and, and that makes me think when we talk about the, the statutory offer to compromise, the other good thing, if someone has a California uh, case and wants to use this opinion, um, every auto manufacturer's law firm, you know, filed an amicus brief to, to one, oppose the opinion, two, depublish it. Uh, insure, uh, auto man, not, not the auto manufacturers, but component manufacturers, they had their lawyers fighting on it. Then when it went up to the Supreme Court, they were petitioning the Supreme Court to depublish it. So even though the Supreme Court didn't accept the case, all the amicus fury to depublish this and have our court not do it, you know, is a, is a sort of an implied rubber stamp that our court, our Supreme Court does believe in the opinion. And it was heavily opposed by every major law firm in the country and every major auto manufacturer. Speaking of, um, we touched on the, the verdict uh, form briefly, and I think I, did I read, am I rem- remembering right from the appellate opinion that the jury deliberated for two and a half days? That sounds right, yeah. So were you able to talk to them after? Did you find out kind of what they were doing during that time? Um, you know, were you, did you sleep at all during that time? <laughs> I was really nervous, you know, um, for a couple of reasons. I knew that, you know, in California, the consumer expectation is proper to use to prove defect, but all the opinions, all the published opinions up to Romine were, yes, it's proper, but not here. And so when, when my partner Scott and I were trying this case and we decided to proceed on consumer expectation test alone, I was a little bit worried on what was going to happen up on, on, on the court of appeals. So one, I was nervous, even if we won, was this verdict going to get taken away? Cause it was a gamble. And I, I talked to my brothers and sisters across the country uh, when I still had a chance to back out of that ruling, you know, on the first day of trial. And it was kind of split. A lot of people were like, don't take the risk, do risk benefit. And a lot of people said, why would you ever do that? You can prove your case a lot easier. So I had a lot of lost sleep after we got the verdict and, and even through trial worrying what that, how that was going to play out. 
but to directly answer your question, yeah, when they were out for a couple of days, I mean, I'm, I'm a nervous Nilly. I always, you know, I'm worried I'm losing. Very rarely have I been in a trial where I was like, oh, man, I know we nailed that one. I mean, that happens a couple of times, but I always figure I'm losing. So I was very nervous the entire time, and that's just how I am. But we did talk to the jury afterwards, and, and they, weren't, they weren't stuck on defect. Um, it was the apportionment of fault. And you can see how reasonable people can disagree on if someone rear-ends you, they should be more at fault. And you can see how someone would believe my argument or appreciate it that, hey, the manufacturer designs a car for crashes. So they were really struggling with um, the apportionment issue uh, more than the liability issue. Got it. Got it. So, but it, yeah, it was, it was a tough two and a half days. <laughs> I, I know you guys know it's never yeah. fun sitting out there in the hallway. <laughs> no, no I, I had a, I had one case up in New Jersey where it took the jury a couple of days, and uh, the the judge didn't want us to leave the the courthouse. We usually, you know, they'll you know you can give them your phone number, go back to your office or whatever. But for some reason, the judge wanted to keep us around, and uh, and so I just walked that courthouse. I don't know. I must have walked it, you know, several miles just to you know figuring out what you did right or wrong and luckily that turned out uh good for us uh, yeah and you know and you, you always think of all the things you did wrong right yeah exactly <laughs> you know the ride home after closing argument oh man i should have said this i should have said that why didn't i i'm an idiot i'm gonna lose because i didn't say that <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> you know we're a bunch of doubting toms on ourselves after uh, oh yeah trial. yeah <laughs> well, so um, going back to the consumer expectation test, I wanted to ask you, you know, in, uh, in, in these cases, from our standpoint, I mean, the thing, the type of evidence you always want to want to get is, you know, have, have good alternative designs, uh, meaning, you know, show, being able to show, you know, another seat that wouldn't fail under the same circumstances, and also uh, get in, you know, as many other similar incidents where, where, you know, the same manufacturers had the same seat fail under similar incidents, uh, some, you know, substantially similar circumstances. Um, and when you're doing the consumer expectation test, how much are you getting into evidence like that, the alternative designs and the other similar incidents? Yeah, literally zero. Um, wow. You know, it's not admissible. So, um, which is fine, which is nice. I mean, on one hand, you want to get in your, your other similar incidents, right, to get a jury mad at somebody, at the defendant, hopefully. But, you know, with the consumer expectation, all that is, re all that is relevant, and it just makes these complicated cases so much more easy to present and simplified. You just show them this crash, this seat, what happened, do you expect this to happen? With no input on it's happened before, there's no requirement to show an alternative feasible design, which since you do these kinds of cases, you know, is out there. I mean, the, you know, the Chrysler Sebring convertible seat, we, we tested both theories because we didn't know what the judge, how the judge was going to rule. So we did right. have evidence right. prepared to put on of an alternative feasible design, but no, really the only, um, so none of that comes in, no OSIs, no alternative feasible design. Ultimately all, all I show on these consumer expectation cases involving seats is I show the jury one sled test um, at the same Delta V as the crash with the dummy in it, the same, you know, height and weight as the plaintiff. And I just show the jury that and I just go, okay, that's what happened. You expect that to happen. And it's that simple. Wow. So I, I assume, and I read something about this in the opinion then to, when you, cause because you're dealing with this consumer expectation test, 
I guess you don't need an expert to talk about what the consumer expectation is, right? Right, exactly. As a matter of fact, the, the law is that that's expressly um, disallowed. So um, the expert testimony is you have to have reconstruction because you've got to show the speeds and delta Vs and, and things of that nature. Um, and then with regard to the seat, um, you know, all the expert really gets up there and does is talk about the seat, you know, the parts of it, educate the jury, the parts of it, which, you know, we can do with a, a diagram and then talks about, you know, what the seat did in the accident, which really your test shows that too. I mean, you, you could really, unless you have a broken part, you can do, you can do a seat case without a seat expert. Wow. And yeah, it's, it's and devastating. I guess the big fight is, well, I mean, I'm sure there's lots of fighting because, you know, all products cases have lots of fighting, but it sounds like a big fight then would be whether or not the test you're using is accurate to what happened in your collision. So did did you get a lot of fighting over what was the right speed and angles and all that kind of stuff? You know, absolutely. You, you get two things. One is that your test is wrong um, and it doesn't, you know, it's not substantially similar to the accident, which of course it is. So it's not a strong argument, but I've yet to try one of these cases without a motion and limited to preclude it on that ground. And then the other ground they try to exclude it on is, well, you know, Mr. Chase wants to prove this with a consumer expectation test. Therefore the test is irrelevant because you don't, you don't need the test because we're not talking about the design of the seat. And they try to confuse a judge because if you don't do these cases and you're a judge for the first time, maybe dealing with one, you're thinking like, yeah, well, why do I have to show a test of the seat if it's not about, the design of the seat and you know the obvious answer at least for, for for an attorney that does the cases is it's just a demonstrative aid to demonstrate to the jury what the seat did in this crash and you know i've never had one excluded but they do fight like hell to, to or heck excuse me to do that yeah. <laughs> no, <I'm, laughs> i think i think we've said worse on this podcast <laughs> yeah. okay good good <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and then the other thing I was thinking about that we haven't really talked about, but it sounds like it might not come into evidence. But in, in these cases, you know, the defense always argues that, you know, these seats are made to yield and, uh, and this is the way they're supposed to act. And they, you know, and they try and use like the catcher's mitt reference that uh, this is kind of like a catcher's mitt. Um, how much are they getting into that argument of, of you know, this designed as intended and, and yielding seats are exactly what they're supposed to do? Yeah, you know, on paper, that's all inadmissible 100% and should not come in. All, and I'll give you, in Romine, some of that came in a little bit, and it shouldn't have, but it did. Um, but technically, all that's relevant is what did this seat do in this accident? And if, if what we're saying is wrong, the defense can say, no, that's not what the seat did, but they can't say it's supposed to do that or, or things of that nature. Now, and... Um, so all of that's out, and the case law is very clear on that. Now, judges, you know, sometimes make a bad ruling on the fly during trial. So during the trial in this case, Johnson Control's lawyer said that it was a, uh, I think he said it was a 19,000-inch-pound seat. And, and so, I, you know, I objected. We had a sidebar, and I go, Your Honor, you know, all that's relevant is what the seat did, not how strong it is, weak it is, or anything else. That's just irrelevant. And, you know, on the fly, the judge goes, no, I'll allow it. So, so throughout trial and throughout the closing argument, you know, the lawyer for Johnson Controls kept telling the jury, this is a 19,000 inch pound seat. You know, it's super strong. Right. And so 
I got up in rebuttal and just kind of did a little Columbo routine and said, you know, I don't know what 19,000 inch pounds is. I don't know if you do or not, but here's what I know. Even if it's a million inch pounds, it failed in this surface reach accident. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was just thinking when it comes to the consumer expectation test, I'm not sure that helps because you're like saying the 19,000 inch pound seat, but it, but it fails. So what does that, what does that mean? It, it, um, yeah, it, it means um, nothing. You know, the problem you know, that they're having, and that this was the first time this lawyer, and he was a good attorney, uh, had to deal with it because it really, you know, defense lawyers, as you know, they're used to getting their exponent people up there and talking about all this engineering mumbo jumbo. The minute you get to prove your case with the consumer expectation test, they're completely lost. You know, they're, they're normally used to defending rollover cases, roof crush cases, seat back cases. They've been doing, because they are all been designed the same for the last 40 years, essentially. So they've got decades of tricks in their book on what works and what doesn't work. As soon as you show up and start doing this consumer expectation test, they don't have all the evidence that they want to use and spin and confuse the jury with. And they're just kind of at a loss. So I totally agree with you to come in and say it was a 19,000 inch pound seat. You know, what does that mean? Doesn't, doesn't mean anything. Things still failed in a 40 mile an hour crash. Exactly. But, but they're struggling with how to defend these cases. So one question I had when you, you know, when you're making this uh, sort of selection between the two theories and you're filing a motion in limine, um, how, how far before trial do you know which theory you're going under? And I guess, are you basically preparing two trials or, you know, two, uh, two types of trials? And then, and then once the decision comes in, you know, you can go with the other. You know, that's an excellent question. Yeah, because you never know what a judge is going to do. I mean, I think I do on seat cases now in California because of this opinion, but on any other defect case, and even my seat cases now, I still, I work up both theories. You know, I do discovery on the OSIs. Um, I, I do discovery on all the risk benefit type evidence, and I'm prepared to put on that case and any auto defect case that I do. Um, and then, you know, depending on the type of case, if it's a seat back case, I want to, I know up front, I'm going to use the consumer expectation test, but I'll still prepare it the other way and even do testing the other way. You never know when you're going to get a bad judge and, and just not follow the law. Uh, like if I have a seatbelt buckle unlatch case, I know I'm going to use the consumer expectation test because I'm going to ask a jury, do you expect in a rollover your seatbelt buckle to pop open? You know, I know they're all going to say no, right. and you're going to win that, you're going to win that case. Now, if I have a rollover case uh, or a rough crush case, I use both because I don't know. Some jurors are going to say, well, of course I expect my car to roll over. It says right there on the visor. We all know SUVs roll over. And even though we can convince them to we're blue in the face, they don't have to, you know, you never know what a jury's going to do. So on cases like rollover case uh, or a roof crush case, I'll use both tests because I'm just not clear if a jury's going to say, yeah, no, I expect my roof to crush. And then in which case you better go risk benefit. And, and so, I usually do know up front, if it's a no-brainer that a jury will not expect what happened to happen, I know I'm going to use the consumer expectation test. But on those cases where, you know, reasonable people can agree to disagree, I'll use both tests. And, you know, it's proper to do that. And you can get defensed on one defect theory and win on the other one just because of the yeah. different tests. Yeah. And I was just thinking on those buckle and latching cases, and, and I, I assume it was similar to in this case. I mean, you know, the fight in those cases is always, you know, was your client wearing the seatbelt or not? And 
So the defense will do everything they can try and say that your, your client just wasn't wearing the seatbelt at all, not that it failed. Um, so was there an argument in this case that she was just driving with her seat reclined more than she should have? No, no, they didn't have any evidence of that. And, and it, it, they would have if they could have. I've had them do that. Uh, in this case, there was enough physical evidence on the recliner to know exactly how the seat was. Um, but you're right. So, so I didn't have it in this case, but I have, I have had a couple of seatbelt buckle trials where they do exactly what you said. And, and that's why the experts, then experts are definitely necessary, not to talk about the expectation if a buckle should spool out or unlatch, but whether they were even wearing it. So, you know, when you use this test in certain cases, you're going to have a lot of expert testimony just to prove that the person was using the device. And I guess we should we should have you talk a little bit about what exactly happened to her seat in this case, because there's a, a couple of uh, different theories when it comes to what happens to a seat back. This one, and if you can explain this, Brian, as I understood it was, did the, the teeth uh, of the recliner become disengaged and then re-engage? Is that what happened? Or did they strip off? Yeah, in this one, and I've had it both ways, but in this one, the teeth actually sheared and stripped. Uh, okay. They just, it was a very flimsy recliner. And so we did put on evidence of that. Um, and, you know, I don't, I, that, that hasn't been the case in most of my consumer expectation seatback cases. And I don't, it doesn't really matter at trial, but you know, if you can put on evidence of a broken part, that's always good. So yeah, in this case, we did have what I'm going to call a broken part. The teeth just sheared. And in our sled testing, we did the teeth sheared exactly the same way on the sled test seats. Yeah, I mean, I can see why they wouldn't argue that she had a recline. I mean, that's that's pretty uh, um, yeah. significant evidence that that it just failed, and and they uh, the teeth that hold it into place just basically broke off and allowed it to go backwards. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so, so another question I had is I, I didn't see and and it, uh, it didn't look like it. Did did you uh, try to ask for punitive damages, or was that ever an issue in the case? And and I guess when you use the consumer expectation test, is it is it you're not going for punitive damages as much? That's that's the downside um, of of using the test, and I have yet to. Try it at trial, but my when I read the case law, I think what'll happen, and I've got a case coming up um, late this year, another seatback case, and I may go through the motions and lemonade and see how the punitive damages argument comes in. But I think, you know, with the consumer expectation test, they can't get in the federal standards. They can't talk about how strong other seats are or weak other seats are compared to this seat. So you keep out all that damaging evidence, FMVSS, all that stuff. Now, once you get into punitive damages and you want to have them punished, you know, I think a good argument could be made anyway that, well, if you're going to say we exhibited, you know, we demonstrated malice or we exhibited a conscious disregard for the rights and safety of others, we get to now defend ourselves that what we did was not a conscious disregard. We complied with the federal standards. Our seat is as good as everybody else's. So I think I'm pretty confident rather the door is opened on a punitive damages case that all that evidence then comes in. Right. Um, right. And, and so I haven't, you know, I haven't done it yet in a, in one of these cases. And I think it's worth just guaranteeing your win. Um, you know, as long as you've got an eight figure life care plan to try to keep it out. Um, now I suppose 
but I don't know. I don't know how this would play out. If you can try your case, get your verdict, and then put on a punitive damages case after your verdict and kind of bifurcate it, then you can probably do it. But I'd be worried then that the jury would say, "Oh, well, if we would have known all that, we wouldn't have let you win." And then they're going to, you know, submit jury declarations and undo your verdict. So I haven't right. done it for those right. reasons. No, I, I, it makes sense, and I think you know. And obviously, you've given this a lot of thought. I, I mean, it does. You know, as you're working through it all that evidence would be relevant uh, once you're talking about whether or not a company should be punished for what it did or didn't do. Yeah, I think so. I think so. So that's the downside to using the test, but I think, you know, you're going to win nine out of 10 of your cases. So it's, it, I'll take the victory. And, you know, I, I always operate from pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. I'm fine being a pig. <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, well, Brian, um, I mean, this has just been really, uh, re really great. And, uh, and I, I think, as we said at the beginning, I mean, not only, you know, this is, is very enlightening for us, you know, who, who don't get to deal with the consumer expectation test uh, uh, very often. And, um, and now I'm, you know, wishing we had this. Right. Um, like I already, I already wanted to move to California for the right. weather, but now, <laughs> exactly. especially, especially after a uh, Brian got this good appellate opinion. I'm like, is there, is there any way I can move? To <laughs> and you want to keep that tan going. We were talking about at the beginning of the show too. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, we, and we should say that uh, we asked you before we got on the air, what, how it uh, was everything out there. And uh, I think you said something along the lines. It's just perfect. And so uh, perfect. that's the way it is in Southern California, right? That's how we roll. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, well, Brian, is there anything else uh, about this case? I mean, obviously, this is uh, a tremendous work, and not only for your client, and it's great to hear that she's doing so well, uh, but also just for, you know, all the other lawyers and, and you know, and other cases that get tried in California. As you said already, I mean, we stand on each other's shoulders, and this is a good opinion for any uh, lawyer handling, handling a uh, product liability case in California to uh, stand on the shoulders of. So it's fantastic work. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Uh, thank you. And you know what? It just, you did make me just think of something that we didn't touch on. I know before my Romine opinion, when I used to argue that I wanted to use the consumer expectation test in California, I would use, you know, our Supreme Court opinion that says it's proper, but I'd never had one that said it was proper in a certain kind of case. And I know I would go to different jurisdictions. Florida's got a couple good, uh, I think, airbag and seatbelt cases on consumer expectations. So while not binding on California, I oftentimes would get out of state authority, discusses a California case like Barker v. Lowell, and then I would argue to my judge, look in Florida, they said, you know, that court says it's okay with a seatbelt case or an airbag case. And the thought just popped into my head, if you're in a state other than California that allows the consumer expectation test, but maybe doesn't have a good opinion saying you can use it in a certain kind of case, I would, I would cite to this authority as at least an example of what another court had done. Because I used to, I forgot, I used to do that all the time before I had this opinion. Yeah, and, and I was yeah. just noticing I, in reading this opinion that you must have done it in this case because the court in talking about other seatback cases that had used the consumer expectation test had cited to a case against Ford Motor Company in Illinois and, uh, right. and went through that case pretty in detail. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it was good to see that they were, uh, uh, looking around the country for where it's been used in similar circumstances. 
Yeah, so hopefully this will help other jurisdictions that allow the test but are maybe conservative on applying it to, you know, help tip, tip the scales in the, the plaintiff's favor because I, I forgot, but that's what I used to have to do before this, argue all these out-of-state authorities. So, Yeah, and depending on your judge, that can either be something that is, uh, oh, yeah. uh, you know, most of the time they look at you like, why are you talking to me about cases from other states? Yep, <laughs> nope, that's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we got to do what we got to do. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, well, listen, Brian, this has been just a a, a, a great talk. And, and uh, as I said already, I mean, just great work. The case that we've been talking about is Romine versus Johnson Controls. It was tried in uh, Los Angeles County. And uh, and as Yvonne already gave, you can actually read the uh, appellate uh, court opinion at 224 California Appellate 4th. 990. It's a 2014 case. And we have been talking to Brian Chase, the managing partner at Bisner Chase. And you can look up Brian and his law firm at bestattorney.com. Um, great work, Brian. Well, hey, Stephen Avon, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Uh, you guys are awesome. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I got a couple nuggets here myself. I'm thank you. It was a great <laughs> <All right>. day. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Thank, thank you, Brian. You bet. Talk soon. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.